Hello, I'm Andrew Proctor from Herbert Smith Freeholds. Hi, I'm Michael Sixig from Sixig Advisory. Hello. And Michael, it's a great and timely opportunity to talk about operational resilience today. Here we are at the end of January 2022. We're about eight weeks away or 50 working days away from the first of the key UK regulatory deadlines for implementing operational resilience on the 31st of March. Not long to go. No, effectively, Andrew, 50 days is not a, a long time at all. And I think if you count a traditional week of Monday to Friday, I think we can expect a lot of very busy weekend. I will just quickly outline the UK requirements before we move to talk about the implication and challenges for firm. And rather than doing the list of the requirements that people should know by then, I think it's rather thinking about the outcome for board. So where board should be at the end of March. So I think the first thing is they should be able, senior management and board, to articulate the resilience in terms of critical services and its impact on regulatory objectives. And I'm sure we will cover that later, but this is one of the main change. They should have approved an impact tolerance for each critical service. They should have approved an investment plan to ensure firms operate within impact tolerance on a continuous basis. They should be confident that they can respond and communicate appropriately following a disruption and managing the various stakeholders. And they should have a plan to review regularly their OPRES status of effort. And all of that need to form a self-assessment, so an operational resilient self-assessment that need to be reviewed and signed off by the board, and that will constitute the dialogue of a document that will be the dialogue with a regulator, if a regulator has any question. And then from this deadline, they will enter the three years transition period, where by then they need to ensure within these three years, they will need to ensure that they can stay within impact tolerance for all their business services. And the PRA and the FCA both have sets of rules, although there's important differences we'll come back to in a minute. But the PRA have added a little extra wrinkle of complexity with a supervisory statement around outsourcing and third-party risk management so that for outsourcing arrangements that are entered into after March last year, after March 2021, there are a whole set of new expectations to be met by March 2022. And firms also have to update all their legacy outsourcing agreements in effect as soon as possible. And all of that and those changes around outsourcing should help firms to get better access to information from outsourced providers and third parties. And I think that's a topic we should come back to as well. But that should help them to meet their operational resilience requirements. The UK is not the only regulator looking at this. It's probably the most fashionable item in international regulation after ESG. But uh, at least, as far as I can tell, the requirements in the UK and the US and other countries, Hong Kong and the European Union proposals under DORA, broadly similar, although the timetables are different. The key ingredients are broadly the same. But Michael, the PRA has introduced a new element into its requirements, shifting its focus to group compliance. What's that all about? Exactly. Uh, some firms are probably doing a bit of recalibration following this late change introduced by PRA in November 2021, and the consultation process just closed last week, mid-January. And the change is basically to impose group operational resilience requirement to financial holding and mixed activity holding, so rather than being at a solo level. So this will impact specific groups only, but do represent quite a material shift from the firms impacting. Of course, there are practical impacts moving from a firm view to a group view, but it does also mean a different board and leadership to review and sign off. Yeah, you've mentioned the board a lot of times already in 
the rules require that the board or the governing body, in the words of the rules, approve and review the written records on operational resilience. And you've talked about the self-assessment, but it's a lot more than that, of course. It'll mean that the board will have to look at what's being designated as important business services, look at the explanation for why those have been designated, look at the process maps for delivering, the scenarios used, the test preparedness, the lessons learned from those tests, the risk tolerances and the explanation for why they're set where they are. Uh, and also look at the comm strategy for when an outage occurs. That's a lot to cover. But I doubt that all boards, maybe even many boards, are properly engaged or are sufficiently engaged ahead of that March 31st deadline. And the requirements for a, a review of the records. So that means the board has got to really test and provide constructive challenge to the executive. That's going to be difficult to get in before the 31st of March. I think also over time, it's one of those areas which again throws up the need to think about board composition and about the importance of making sure that a board includes directors who have the background and competence to be able to challenge and approve these sort of technology heavy topics. But Michael, what about this whole concept of risk tolerance? I know you've been doing some work to compare where different firms are setting their risk tolerances for similar services. What have you seen? Thanks, Andrew. Effectively, we have done recently a survey across the market with Auric International covering general insurance life and asset managers. And I think what we found, so first of all, a different readiness status across the three sectors that will come back to it in a minute. And I think the, the second finding was some IBS where people will have a common, there is a sort of commonalities and they will all agree that is either a few hours or a few days. But then some services like renewal in GI, where you will have a huge differences and different market view moving from two days to almost 30 days. So meaning that a challenge that a regulator will have and the market will have is very different views for the same IBS of what is the right impact tolerance. So I think the finding also was the quality of a rational, and I think we will recommend firm to spend quite a bit of time on that, on why it's an IBS and what is the quality of a rational for themselves, but as you say, for scrutiny by the board and for scrutiny by the regulator, and also what is the rational of the impact tolerance. And clearly, I think the conclusion is there is a lot of subjectivity there, and I think is doing a good job of justifying your impact tolerance. The other findings was at the earlier work we have done was the number of IBS. So we also see quite a lot of variations on how people went extensive, how people have done on move from two or three IBS in an extreme case up to 20. Again, I think what we should expect is the regulator, even if a regulator is not yet clear on that, we will expect the regulator trying to drive consistency when they will get the data and we will expect a lot of engagement. So I think your suggestion will be, being ready for that and being prepared. And then last and not least, the most maybe important finding was the vast majority of uh, actors are focused on the FCA impact tolerance. So the, the impact tolerance with a consumer harm focus. And, it's, and I don't know why, but it seems to be easier for people to focus on that rather than the PRA focus. And I think what is very important is a policy that was very much PRA and Bank of England. I think we need to, to remember that is about the resilience of a system, not just about the firm. And of course, it's a joint policy and both regulators are as important. So I think we believe that in firm are doing that since the survey, a lot of work still going on in the next few months to make sure they can have a view on PRA objective and FC objectives. Yeah, it's interesting. I am sure that 
more firms will have an impact on the FCA objectives, perhaps than on the PRA, but every firm has to think about that PRA angle and at least get it right, not just copy across into the PRA the same set of important business services that you've identified through the FCA lens. And I also agree with you on the, the question of bringing together and standardizing or making more consistent the risk tolerances that are being identified, both in number and duration. Although the regulators have said it's up to the firm, I don't believe for a minute they'll let it sit there. There will be, I think, particularly from the FCA, a drive to identify risk tolerances, which in its judgment are too generous. Or as I think they'll put it, which are not consistent with their expectations around treating customers fairly. And they'll use that principle-based approach to say, not good enough, you need to tighten this up. Let's see. But I also think there'll be another pressure, a, a commercial pressure, at the, almost at the other end of the spectrum, because I think the FCA focus might be on the retail. But at the other end of the spectrum, I think some of the key um, and more sophisticated counterparties for banks and brokers will pressure firms to tighten their risk tolerances in a couple of ways. I think they'll play one firm off against another, saying, I'm getting this over here. Why can't you deliver the same? They'll ask for risk tolerances to be reflected in service standards. They might also push for risk tolerances to be reflected in contractual warranties. And I think over time, that combination of the regulator and the commercial pressure will drive a greater level of consistency. But if we turn to that, the question of what is being identified as an important business service, you've made the point that you see a broad spectrum where it doesn't appear to be justified having a look at the business models. And yesterday, we I know you joined in as well, we listened to an FCA PRA webinar on this topic. And interesting on this question of particular business services, because there was a suggestion first that a firm ought to be able to say not only what service, but with some degree of detail, why a particular service is identified as important, and that there are metrics that they ought to be able to point to consumer metrics, or in the absence of a particular metrics, even something like the absence of an ability to be able to provide a substituted service for a particular service that's provided. That all seems reasonable to me. It's, after all, a judgment about the external impact of a service on consumers and, as you say, on, on markets. And that's why the FCA, again, at the seminar was keen to point out that firms are getting it wrong when they identify things like payroll services and important business services, because they're internal, important, no doubt, for the delivery of external services, but don't themselves have any direct connection to um, consumers or markets. But on the other hand, I thought it was rather odd when the FCA went on to talk about the need to document the reasons for setting a particular risk tolerance, that is the duration of the risk tolerance. And they gave an example in which they said, imagine that the risk tolerance is set at 12 hours. We think you as a firm ought to be able to explain to us why 12, why not 11, why not 13? And it's, it was said, therefore, that the firm ought to be able to pinpoint, in effect, exactly the moment at which a harm becomes intolerable. That does seem to me to be pretty extraordinary. After all, the whole thing's scenario-based. You have to assess the external effect on markets or consumers. But I don't really see how a firm could possibly say with sufficient precision, well, under our scenario, at 11 hours, the impact on customers will be X. At 12 hours, it'll be Y. At 13 hours, it'll be Z. And that's the basis on which we got to 12. That seems to me just beyond what's reasonable on a scenario-based strategy. Also, it gets more difficult, I think, because they went on to say, 
And it's not just customers at large. We want you to segment your customers. And in particular, they focus in on vulnerable customers. But actually, you ask yourself, why stop there? I mean, there are different ways in which a customer might be vulnerable. So you get this kind of matrix of outcomes, uh, the point at which harm might become intolerable might vary not only between those who are vulnerable and those who are not, but for different types of vulnerability. All of that off the back of scenario-based modeling doesn't seem realistic because you only have to tweak your scenario a little bit and suddenly you've got a whole different set of outcomes at hour 11, 12, and 13. But am I being unreasonable? No, this is very um, interesting, Andrew, because what you're raising is and maybe this is the heart of the policy, the definition of intolerable level of harm. And I think people, sh my suggestion would be people and bold, again, spend time of what is my definition? Because by being very clear on this and how the whole program will calibrate across the, the services will be the answer. And I think if it's not done already, important point to spend time on. And almost, I'm not want to mix two concepts, but what is the appetite? What we consider is the intolerable level of harm mm -hmm. and applying that, trying to apply that consistently. I think yesterday, and I agree with you, the danger of a message from the FCA is creating a bit of spurious complexity and being lost in the weed of the detail rather than what is the overall objective of a policy. It is, and we think one of the reasons why people have difficulties with also the PRA impact runs, because the idea is not to be very precise, but at least to have a message to say, are we in danger of, or can I have a bad impact on the market after, is it five days, 10 days, 15 days? I don't think if five or six will make a big difference. So I think it's Indeed. the overall philosophy of it. So no, completely aligned with that. Yeah, let's assume we're wrong though, because uh, after all, that's what the FCA has said. One thing is absolutely clear, that firms do need to document their thinking, as you say, their definition of intolerable harm and why they've arrived at the tolerance setting that they've arrived at, even if I happen to think that the suggested level of detail is unrealistic. And then there's a question of, okay, well, let's assume that um, you don't stay within your risk tolerance. Actually, there was an interesting discussion there at the webinar, which it almost seemed as though the FCA representatives were saying, well, that's unacceptable. You must never get to that point. Although, Clearly, its own guidance contemplates that you might because it goes on in guidance to talk about circumstances where the risk tolerance might be exceeded and you might properly do that because you judge that to keep your risk tolerance might cause further harm and detriment. I guess for the most part, this question of what happens if you exceed your risk tolerance and the, the consequences of that's all pretty obvious. You can, in the usual way, face an investigation and maybe even financial penalty. There might be a redress scheme that comes off the back of that. I suppose that breach of the key operational resilience rules would quite often also be breaches of principle, principle two around skill, care and diligence, or three around management and control. The question of then looking at it through the consumer lens, if customers suffer adverse outcomes as a consequence of failing to meet the risk tolerances, that might be a principle six failure to treat them fairly. And then, of course, there's this question around communications because the rules require that you have a communication strategy in the event that you have an outage. And the rule requires, I think, that you are clear, timely, and relevant in your communications. And of course, if you were not clear, timely, and relevant, the chances are you're probably also in breach of principle seven. So in the usual way, you'd expect the potential for investigations and redress programs. But there's actually another little dimension to this because the FCA rules, at least, will become part of the handbook in CISC 15A. And 
because they're not excluded from the scope of Section 138D, a breach of those rules might also give rise to a private right of action for individuals. Now, private right of action under that section effectively is a personal right of action. The circumstances in which a company could bring action under that section are very, very limited to the point where you don't really have to worry about it. But there is certainly, therefore, the possibility of breach of the rules leading to private rights of action and potentially class actions off the back of the failure to meet your expectations and your tolerances. Michael, I mentioned earlier that the PRA supervisory statement on outsourcing, and there does seem to be a particular challenge posed by third-party arrangements in all of this and meeting operational resilience. Do you agree with that? Yes, Andrew, exactly. And I think we have even recently described third party as maybe one of the main challenges at this stage of implementation. Because in terms of our requirements we covered before, in terms of mapping your important business service and testing, when you have a third party involved, you need to coordinate with this third party. And I think third party covers a lot of different variations. So it can be an outsourcer, it can be part of your distribution chain, it can be just a vendor. And I think there is... Um, so there is a challenge in itself. I think what we are recommending in this space is having a risk-based approach on looking at your vendor or third party and the importance they have across your important business service. There is a good chance that the same vendor, let's take Amazon, may cut across your various impact runs. So having a focus per resources or per vendor and having a proportionate way of either relying on attestation or asking declaration or doing the work if it's so critical for your important business service and having an agreement where you can do mapping or require them to do the mapping that you require. A question that I'm sure you will have a view on will be the, the legal approach on that or the quality of the agreement, because there may be some agreement in place that allow you to do that. There may be no agreement in place for some of the arrangements. We feel that in the next year, after 31st of March, will be a big focus on that in terms of additional level of sophistication, because we need to enter the regime with a certain level. We think that third party will be the key focus for the next few months. Indeed. And we've certainly seen a lot of clients going back and reviewing their third party outsourcing arrangements to give them additional rights to ask for information, actually additional expectations to receive information and additional audit type rights to check the controls. But you know, the bigger financial services firms have hundreds, indeed thousands of these arrangements. They simply can't go out and review in any detail the, the quality of controls. There's this concept that you find in the draft European legislation around joint auditing certificates, but that's still got a lot of work to do, I think, because you can't imagine an external auditing firm exposing itself by giving an assurance about the quality of controls at a firm in a way which would be sufficient, especially since most of the risk and exposure is at the interface between the third party and the firm. And they, of course, can't get down to that level of detail, but it might go some way. But I think we will have to wait and see what kind of guidance comes out of the European regulators in respect of that. So here we are, it's the 28th of January. By now, firms ought to be through their preliminary scenario testing and boards should be looking at the proposals for what's an IBA and where to set risk tolerances. But I guess that a lot of them will be scrambling to meet that 31st of March deadline. I guess over the next six to 12 months, I'd also expect to see the FCA and the PRA testing the quality of firms' documentation, working out actually how to supervise this area, if I'm honest. I think they'll demand more and better documentation, a better explanation for the choices that have been made and why they've been made. And I think we will get some of that regulatory pressure 
towards a convergence of risk tolerances and an overall shortening of the risk tolerances. Michael, what do you think we'll see in the year ahead? What if we come back the same time next year? Where will we be after one year of implementation? So I expect a lot of regulatory engagement strategy because this topic, and I think for a lot of good reason in specific sectors, there was a lot of over priorities for the regulators and for the board. And I guess for partial resilience, despite this starting this year, it would be within 2022 rather than 2021. So I do expect the, the, the PR and VFC engaging. There may be some surprises along the way because due to little engagement before, and then finding a routine. And as you say, what does it mean to supervise a partial resilience? I think it's a strategic change and challenge, but I'm not sure it has been seen yet by the market as, as important as it is. So I think it will play out in the next few months. You mentioned right at the outset, actually, that there's a backstop date of March 2025 by which firms must be within their risk tolerances. I don't think that many firms will be given the luxury of three years, certainly not the bigger ones. The pressure will be on right from the start and the the focus of the regulators will be on the second part of that transitional provision as soon as reasonably possible. And that's what I think we should expect to see. And that's what firms have to plan for. Very interesting to talk to you, Michael. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we should do it again in 12 months and see where we get to. Thanks a lot, Andrew.